Well, it's good to see you all for week six. So we have tonight and then four more, and then we'll call it a semester. I welcome everybody joining us online or watching sometime during the week. I do want to mention I got a phone call yesterday from a man from Italy, and he was calling to talk about last week's Pillars discussion. He listens to the podcast as he was driving to a meeting, and he called me heading to another meeting, and he called from Italy to let me know. I also found out that on Instagram, the Instagram post, I guess it was from last week, we had over 6,000 views of uh, Pillars. That was just last week's, I think. So that's pretty exciting to see uh, what God's doing, and I I find it hard to believe you all keep coming back and you're interested, but <laughs> that makes me nervous. You'll keep coming back. I have to keep coming back. <laughs> well, let's pray, and I'll let you know what we're going to do tonight. Lord, thank you uh, for another day, another opportunity to get to know you a little bit, to get to trust you as you guide us through the ups and downs of life. Lord, we confess that today our eyes were taken off of you some, and uh, we paid the consequences or lost that sense of trust and peace and certainty. But Lord, tonight we ask that you help us to refocus on you. And may those times in which we're looking at you and being led by you and conscious of your presence, may those times increase and may the times decrease when we forget about you, we're distracted and we head in other directions. And Lord, as we think about theological priorities tonight and how understanding those priorities may actually help us to be able to live at peace with people and be able to celebrate community, even though we may have differences and we may not agree on a lot of the details. Lord, help us to live above the fray, knowing that as long as we have Jesus and the gospel in common, that we are brothers and sisters, and we're able to travel through life together uh, without making sure we're all in line with every little detail. So Lord, help us tonight as we process that. We pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, well, believe it or not, we are in our, we're gonna start and finish tonight our third pillar. So our first two pillars, and by now you're probably uh, learning a little bit of language, right? Our first two pillars uh, talked about how we approach the Bible. So, and those two ideas would be, the technical term would be, they're hermeneutical principles. They're herme a hermeneutic is the science and art of interpretation. And so the first two things tell us one, we approach the Bible as a big story. So even though we have over 40 authors and it's 66 books, ultimately it's the Holy Spirit's story as he led those authors. And so that big story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. So it's not a bag of marbles that we can pick and choose the order and rearrange them however we want. God has put him in a certain order. And in that context, we need to read it. The second principle is that the Bible ultimately is Jesus' story. So everything in the, in the Bible is moving to him and everything in the Bible moves from him. He's the climax. He's the point and the purpose. And so we need to keep him front and center. So when we're reading a piece over here in the Old Testament or even a piece in the New Testament, one of the questions we have to ask is, so how does this point us to Jesus? How does this flesh out the gospel in one way or another to help us understand the gospel more holistically and Jesus' ministry more particularly? So those two at Bible Approach, we're going to kind of leave them tonight. We'll come back to them toward the end because we're going to need them for our fourth pillar, but we don't need the hermeneutical things tonight. Hopefully we'll follow them as we look at verses tonight, but we're going to look at having a prioritized theology. So we don't have to think about the first two pillars tonight, but we do have to go back and remind ourselves of our definition of ministry and mission. And you're going to understand, if not, I'm going to tell you in a few minutes, why you have to have a prioritized theology in order to fulfill Paul's understanding and Jesus' understanding of mission and ministry. So remember, we use them, Galatians 4, as our primary mission or ministry verse. And here's what Paul writes. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me. He's calling them to become like him. Not that he's arrived, not that he's perfect, but that he is in process. So become like him as he is progressing toward the destination of Christ likeness. Christ is the goal. Paul is in process. So he's saying, you all become like me, not as the destination, as one in process pursuing the destination. So become like me. But prior to that, chronologically, he became like them. And so he came alongside them and then he called them to become like him. They can't start where he is. He is to start where they are. 
Paul fleshes that idea out in 1 Corinthians 9 uh, when he says this, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. Now, you've got to have a prioritized theology to do that. Because if every specific detail of the Old Testament had to be fulfilled and it never changed, Paul could never say, I became like one not having law. He would have to stay under the law. And so he's got to prioritize theology that some things change. So for example, the Old Testament calls Jewish boys to be circumcised the eighth day. Well, he says, Paul says in the New Testament, circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. What? Well, he's got to prioritize theology. There were certain Jewish festivals and feasts. Paul says you no longer have to celebrate them. In fact, the writer of Hebrews would say, as Christians, it's illegitimate to celebrate those. Why celebrate the picture when you have the reality in the present, right? You don't take out a picture of your wife if she's sitting at the dinner table with you, right? You take out a picture if she's not there and right, you're traveling on a business trip. That's the idea. So you have things that were given up. You need to prioritize theology for that. Otherwise, you can't change anything. If you can't change anything, he can't become like those not under the law or he can't become like those under the law because everything can't change. Make sense? It'll become clear, I think, a little bit. So here was our definition. I'm going to blow through these quickly. You already know this, right? We took those verses and that concept and put it into a picture. And here's what we said. The picture represents where God wants people to be, and there's people. So ministry or mission is being used by God to influence people to move from where they are to where God wants them to be. Ultimately, moving them from where, God, where they are to where God wants them to be is the work of the Holy Spirit, but he uses us as a means or influence to propel that process, right? We said that it's a little more complex than that, because not everybody resides in one starting point. There are some over here. And so we said you could do this geographically, right? North America, mainland China, Ukraine, Russia. Um, so what happens? Different starting point requires a different bridge, a ministry, a different means of influence. Um, another starting point up here would require a different bridge. So we said geography may require different bridges. Demography may require different bridges. And I, I didn't say it a few weeks ago because I wanted to say it tonight. And you would think, you know, there are lots of things in the Bible that are kind of left to wisdom and left, left to us to kind of figure it out. You know, one of the ways you could think about that is there is no New Testament Leviticus. Leviticus in the Old Testament is a worship manual. It told the Israelites how to worship. Bring the animal, do this, right? This is how you worship, sound the trumpet. There is no New Testament, Leviticus. In the New Testament, we're told, now since the gospel is going to all these different cultures, those cultures will somehow shape how worship happens. Christianity is the only religion, the only worldview that actually takes root in different cultures and creates a slightly different looking plant because it's planted in different cultural soil. No other religion or worldview does that, right? So Christianity will be colored to some degree, will be shaped to some degree by the culture it's in. Now, we should expect that this be true, even though this is often you know, a means to fight, right? Don't tear my bridge down. I don't want to build your bridge. I like my bridge. But here's why we shouldn't fight about that. We've got chapter and verse on that, that that's how it works. Now, here's what I mean by that. If we're thinking geographically, and this is often how missions were done, you know, centuries ago, here, here's, how, here's how it worked. If this is, say, um, uh, we'll pick one. If this is tribe, uh, a tribe, tribal land in Africa, right? Here's how old missions worked. We, North Americans typically, 
we would ship over clothing, Western, right, European clothing. We'd ship over, no lie, pipe organ. We'd ship over hymn books. They, they would have to learn English. And the, the, the people, they would move into the mission's compound. They would basically, step one, become North American. Then once they become North American, our North American bridges would work, right? See how it works? So if we could take these people, you know, Africa, Russia, wherever you want to say, and we could move them to become American, we could then use the American bridges, a two-step evangelistic approach, right? First become like us, then you can become like Jesus. That also happens demographically, right? And so it's 2022 now. You don't have to move back in time to 1980 or 2000 in order to move to where God wants you to be. Demographically, you can move right from where you are to where God wants you to be. You don't need the wineskins, the methodologies, the bridge strategies of 20 years ago. The strategies can change based on changing demographic. Here's why I say there's M chapter and verse. Think of that two-step philosophy. Do you know what um, Acts 15 is about? Some, some of you need to read Acts 15 because Acts 15 is the fighting chapter, right? Just like the old hockey day, Broad Street Boat. That, that's Acts 15. Acts, I kind of like Acts 15. It begins with a fight and it ends with a fight. The whole chapter is about fighting. It begins with a fight because as Paul is kind of making his way, you know, around the Mediterranean sharing the gospel, he's not calling those Gentiles to become Jewish in order to become Christian. It wasn't a two-step approach. So he's not saying, okay, you Galatians, first you have to become Jewish, then our Jewish bridges work, right? So you don't have to become Jewish. So now you celebrate the feast, you travel to Jerusalem, you take your offerings to the temple. You don't have to do that. Galatians, you can move right from where you are to where God wants you to be. Rome, Romans, you don't have to become Jewish in order to move to where God, that's what Paul's been saying. Well, that message gets back to um, the Judaizers, right? Gets back to some of the staunch Jewish believers back in Jerusalem, and they're ticked, right? Paul gets called in on the carpet, and the whole chapter is this big fight. It's called the Jerusalem Council. It's a trial. Paul and his message is put on trial because here's the two sides. Do you have to become Jewish in order to become a Christian, or can you move right from where you are, wherever that is, to be Christian where God wants you to be. Do you know what the um, result of the Jerusalem Council is? You do not have to become Jewish in order to become a Christian. Do you, you realize, when you read that chapter, you can feel it. We came this close to having two different Christian churches, the Jewish Christian church and the Gentile Christian church. If the council would have decided in another way, that would have been the first big schism that would still continue today. The result was you do not have to become Jewish in order to become a Christian. That's chapter and verse. So it's not a two-step process. You don't have to move back in time to 1980, 1950. You don't have to become North American. You can move right from where you are in the categories in which you're familiar, right to where God wants you to be. It's not a two-step process. Evangelism, discipleship is a one-step process from where you are to where God wants people to be. The fight at the end of the chapter doesn't have to do with the Jerusalem Council. The fight at the end of the chapter in Acts 15 is the fight between Paul and Barnabas. And remember, Paul says, hey, I'm going on the second missionary. He didn't call it second missionary. I'm going out to visit the churches we planted. Barnabas says, I'm coming too. I'll go get Mark. Paul says, well, you're welcome to come. Mark's not coming. Oh, why can't Mark come? He deserted us on the first trip. Barnabas says, no, I think Mark should go. And the chapter ends without that fight being resolved. And Barnabas goes one way, and Paul goes with Silas the other way. And that's the last time in the New Testament we see Paul and Barnabas together again. It begins with a fight and ends with a fight. You don't have to become Jewish. You don't have to move back in time. You don't have to move to a certain geographical location to move to where God wants you to be. You can go direct, all right? So you have to understand that in order for our prioritized theology to make sense. So we said ministry is being used by God to influence people to move from where they are to where God wants people to be. So we got to balance. Remember, we said balance 
faithfulness and naturalness. Faithfulness to the gospel, relevance, naturalness to the listener. Categories, illustrations, ideas, language in which those people understand. Well, in order to do that, here, let, let me explain how this can get complicated quickly. If you think of what we're called to do as we do ministry or mission, you've got to understand something about the ancient world. Why would we have to not understand about the ancient world? Because the Bible was delivered in the ancient world. When we read the Bible, we're reading somebody else's mail. It wasn't directed to us. Well, you've got to know something about the original recipients in order to understand what it's about. Now, in a sense, it is to us because we're God's people and the Bible comes to God's people. But particularly, <clears throat> the Bible was given directly to others in language that they would have understood with illustrations and categories, vocabulary they would understand. And a lot of that's foreign to us. So we're reading somebody else's mail, which means we have to understand something about the ancient world. And this is where, you know, study comes in. Um, you know, and we said it early on, the Bible's a hard book, right? It's big and there's difficult concepts, words we don't understand, and cultural aspects we were very foreign to us. There's a different language, there's a different history, there's a different culture. You have to know something about that. And the only way to know that, since that's not our world, is to study. There are lots of helps to help you understand that. So that's what a good commentary will do. That's what a good Bible dictionary will do, a Bible encyclopedia. In, uh, I would say to, to, to new you know, believers or people, maybe you've been a believer for a while and you're just going to you know, take, a, take a stab at studying a little more in depth. The first thing I would tell you to do is not go get a commentary. And don't go out and buy something that's going to explain everything in the text. Go buy a good Bible dictionary or you know, a Bible encyclopedia. And when you don't understand something, look it up. And you know, just like you have to understand the words in English to understand what the author's saying. Well, you've got to understand that in the Bible. Get a good Bible dictionary and just work your way through. Look up what you don't know in phrases and categories, vocabulary, and it'll go a long way. All right, so there's the ancient world. But there's also a contemporary. We don't live in the ancient world. We live in a contemporary world. We live in its 2022, right? And that's very different. Very different than the ancient world. Our world has a language, a history, and a culture. And you have to know something about the language, history, or culture, or you can't understand our contemporary world. So you have to know something about the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, in order to understand what's going on in the Ukraine tonight, right? You have to understand something about um, African-American slavery, African slavery, in order to understand what's happening in Black Lives Matter and in our culture, that you have to know something about the history in order to understand what's going on because the roots go back in history, language and culture, right? All those things kind of get mixed up. We often assimilate things, listen to things in our own culture and don't even assess what's going on there. So you got the ancient world, the contemporary world, but it's more complicated because then we've got the personal, you have a world, right? You have a world, I have a world and our personal worlds aren't the same. You got to understand that a little bit. And then our ministry world, right? We're in the ministry world tonight of Calvary Church, you know, a suburban congregation, right? That, that, that's different. Um, so you've got to understand something about the worlds. Well, all of a sudden, we've got a lot of work to do, but we're, in order to do all of that, you need a sense of a prioritized theology, or you're not going to put in the effort to move to where people are, or you're going to feel like it's forbidden to study those things and make some adaptations, even the way Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 and Galatians 4. So mission and ministry require a prioritized theology. And what we're going to talk about for the next 20 minutes or so should be really familiar to you. These categories have become part of Calvary's language, right? And so if you've been to Calvary Church any length of time at all, you've heard about absolutes, convictions, and preferences, right? That's a prioritized theology. And so when I say prioritized theology, I'm referring to our understanding of absolutes, convictions, and preferences, those three concentric circles. You've got to have some understanding of what's absolutely true, what convictions you have and convictions other people may have, and what's a preference and not a conviction or an absolute. Now, before we take a little a deeper dive into that, I'm not saying that we all have to put the same exact items in each of the circles. It's pretty clear, most of us, we're gonna have the same stuff in the absolute circle. 
we're not going to have the same stuff in the conviction circle. Well, maybe a conviction for some of you is going to be a preference for somebody else. What's going to be a preference may be a conviction. Absolutes is a little neater and cleaner, but once you get the convictions and preferences, we're not saying we all have to agree on what goes in the conviction circle and what goes in the preference circle, and we'll give a couple of illustrations as we go. All right, now I'm, I say this every time I talk about this because I don't want you saying, I looked up what those words mean and you didn't say the truth. No, I'm giving you the definitions, right? Um, they're my three circles. I get to tell you what they mean. Uh, you may not like the words, okay? When, when you give your illustration or you give your little three circles, you call them whatever you want. Uh, but for the next half hour, let me define the categories and you can fight with, don't even fight with me after, I'm going home. Uh, fight with yourself and you call them whatever you want, all right? Here's what I mean by absolutes. Things that are clearly and regularly taught in the Bible. So these aren't some, you know, little minuscule idea over here, some little idea that somebody thought of, and here's one verse over here, and this idea shows up here. No, no, no. Clearly and regularly taught. If other people that have studied the Scripture don't see it clearly, that's probably not an absolute, all right? Clearly and regularly taught. Another way to think about absolutes is these things are, are believed across denominational lines. And so now, I'm not saying across, you know, religious lines, because there are different religions, but across denominational lines. So if these different groups are Christian groups, they will believe the absolutes in common, right? Clearly, regularly taught, believes across denominational lines, and believed throughout Christian history. So it's not some new idea that somebody invented last weekend. Oh, look, it's clearly and regularly taught. No, throughout history, clearly and regularly taught across denominational lines. Got it? That's the idea. All right, well, we're uh, among friends. Yell out real loud an, an example or so. Yell out an example of an absolute. Jesus, right? Jesus. Yeah, we could probably be a little more specific, but yeah, Jesus, certainly, right? Jesus, fully God and fully man, right? That's often referred to as the deity of Christ, right? Christ means king. Jesus is king, and he's fully God and fully man the incarnation, all that stuff kind of gets wrapped up in the deity of Christ. So we believe that that's an absolute, clearly and regularly taught, believes across denominational lines, throughout Christian history. If you're a Christian, you believe that Jesus is God and Jesus became a human being, right? That's an absolute. What else you got? Yeah, resurrection, yeah. So Jesus, right? Jesus was executed, crucified, and just like, you know, we'll read a few minutes, Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, the creed says. So Jesus crucified, he dies, he's put into a tomb, he's literally dead. But on the third day, he rose again from the dead, right? So we believe he rose from the dead, the resurrection, and he ascended into heaven. So those words I'm reciting there come from the Apostles' Creed, and maybe you went to a church where you would recite the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed, probably the oldest creed that we have, is a statement of absolutes, right? And so when you say the Apostles' Creed, I'm not sure you've ever noticed this, the Apostles' Creed, like most creeds throughout Christian history, is Trinitarian. Starts with the Father, talks about the Son, talks about the Spirit. All creeds do that. In fact, almost all theological textbooks follow that same format. So if you pick up, you know, even a multi-volume theological, you know, theological set, set of books, They'll follow almost always the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, and what He do, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His Holy Son, our Lord. And you got all that stuff about Jesus because Jesus is the point and the purpose. So you better have most of your stuff about Jesus in the Creed, right? That's what we've been saying for the last few weeks. And then lastly, I believe in the Holy Ghost, right? Holy Spirit, Holy Catholic Church. That doesn't mean Roman Catholic Church. Catholic just means whole, unified, right? Universal Church. It that the Holy Spirit makes and builds and gives us community in. So the Apostles' Creed is a statement, a collection of absolutes. All right? Got another one? What else you got? Yeah, God's sovereignty, right? And so, yeah, God is sovereign. He's in control of all that can be controlled. And, you know, the other tension of that is, and this is your favorite topic, <laughs> Here, here's the counterpoint, right? The tension to sovereignty. And, you know, theologians have wrestled with this through the centuries. Here it is. The tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. The Bible makes it clear when you sin, 
You're responsible for that sin. You, you did it. God is also sovereign. How can both of those be true? I don't know. Right? That, that theological idea is called compatibilism. The two things seem paradoxical or contradictory, but somehow they're compatible in the Bible. Therefore, they must be compatible in the mind of God. And his mind's a whole lot bigger than ours. So in our mind, you can't have both of them being true, but somehow they are true. Right? Human, human responsibility, divine sovereignty. Got another one? Well, we'll have one more absolute, then we'll move on. What else you got? Yeah, Bible's inspired by God. Yeah, I, I, I like the way you said that. So we often speak of Bible being inspired. Inspired just means um, that the Spirit, we would believe, right? When the Holy Spirit inspired the Scripture, Peter says it this way, the Spirit moved the authors of Scripture to write what he wanted written. And here, here, here's a weird tension, right? The human authors wrote exactly what the Spirit wanted written, but they wrote it in their vocabulary, in their experience, in their phrasing, in their illustration, they wrote it, they really wrote it. And the Spirit moved them to write it. And so when you read Matthew, you know you're not reading John. When you read Isaiah, you know you're not reading Jeremiah. They really are different, but the Spirit moved them so that the product, what they produced, is God's Word, but it's also the words of the human authors. In some ways, uh, you can think of that idea similarly to the incarnation of Jesus, right? Fully God and fully man. The Bible, to some degree, is God's word incarnated. It's God's word and it's human words, right? Together. So we've got the scripture being the incarnation of God's word, Jesus being the incarnation of God himself. We got the living word and the word being both representations of things that are God divine, and also human. All right, got the idea? So here's how it works, absolutes. If someone doesn't believe the absolutes, they're not Christian. Now, I'm not saying that to be nasty. I'm just saying that to be faithful to what the Bible says, right? Um, you have to believe the absolutes in order to be a Christian. If, you're, if you don't believe the absolutes, you're not family, you may be a really good person, may go to church all the time, may teach Sunday school, you may do lots of stuff, right? But if you don't believe the absolutes, you're not a Christian. You can be a lot of things, but you're not a Christian. So that's what absolutes are, apostles' creed kind of stuff, right? Gets a little trickier from there. Now, convictions. Remember, my definitions, my definition. Here's what I mean by, by conviction. Convictions are human constructs, right? So human constructions, we're going to build it, we're going to build it. But we're building that conviction with biblical data. So we're going to build this conviction house. We're going to build it out of Bible verses, out of Bible themes, out of Bible passages, right? Make sense? Human constructs, but we're using biblical data. So I, I've used other illustrations for this. I'm, I'm using the Peapod illustration now. Do any of you get Peapod? Nobody gets Peapod. Both my daughters get Peapod. I don't get Peapod. They get Peapod. Uh, okay, Peapod means you get your food delivered to your front step. You don't even have to go shopping, right? And it, it, that may be a little scary to think about, but I'll tell you what. They pick and deliver better food than I can go. Well, I don't go to the store. But they pick better food than Kim can pick up at the store. Um, it's amazing the kind of stuff they deliver. Okay, but just suppose. Here's the, here's the conviction illustration. Suppose every one of us in this room had the exact same Peapod delivery put on our doorstep tomorrow afternoon. And we got all kinds of stuff, right? We got a lot of foods you love. Carbohydrates, dessert, cookies, right? And a whole lot of foods we don't like. Green stuff and avocado. Like, what is that? That, that texture freaks me out. Croutons, right? Who likes all that weird? So a lot of foods we like, a lot of foods we don't like. Well, anyway... We each have to make dinner tomorrow night. We've all gotten the same delivery. And they've delivered so much, it fills our front step. It fills our porch, right? We bring it all in. We're going to cook dinner. Obviously, you can't cook everything they delivered. What are you going to cook? All right. Remember, you got everything you could imagine. What are you going to cook for dinner? Pasta. Any sauce, meat? There we go. Sausage, mushrooms, red sauce, pasta. Uh, I'm coming to your house. We're having dessert, right? Okay, how about you? What are you going to cook? Avocados, no. <laughs> Avocado toast, oh. 
<laughs> so an avocado salad or guacamole. Okay, I'm not coming to your house. <laughs> no carbs, no sugar. Okay, yeah, yeah, have fun with that. <laughs> you get the idea? So you get the peapod delivery. We all get the same stuff, but we're going to make very different dinners. Some of you are going to grill steak on the grill, right? Other of you are going to say, no, no, I'm going to have seafood. We're going to have scallops and lobster. Others of you say, well, I'm not eating any vegetables. We'll have rice, right? You pick and choose. You've got everything you could imagine. Here's the point. You will take some items in the Peapod delivery, and those items will be center of the plate for you, right? You know, that uh, tomahawk steak, that's center of the plate. That lobster tail, stuffed with crab, center of the plate. That avocado, center of the plate, right? So center of, some items are going to be center of the plate. Other items are not going to make the cut to come anywhere near the plate, right? It's staying in a refrigerator or you're throwing it out. So some items become center of the plate. Other items completely discarded. Other items become garnish, become side dishes, become, you can eat this if you want it, right? That's the idea with convictions. Remember, Human constructs, right? So we don't go to the Peapod delivery. We go to the Bible. And some of what we find there becomes center of the plate. Some of what we find become, that becomes the priority. That becomes the main thing, right? Other parts that are really in the Bible, we don't like that. We discard that. We don't, we don't want to think about that. That messes us up, right? Other things become secondary, tertiary. We don't even think about that at all, right? Now, God delivered the whole peapod order. He delivered the whole Bible. You made some items center of the plate, other items you discarded, other items you made of secondary or lesser importance. You did that, though. That's what I mean by convictions. Another way to think about convictions is, I'm trying to give you ways to think about it, is some Christians do and some Christians don't. So come, some Christians may believe this, and some Christians don't believe. Now, you can't do that with absolutes. You can't say, oh, yeah, absolutes. Some Christians do. Some, no, no, no. Absol absolutes, all Christians do. Convictions, some Christians do. Some Christians don't. So not everybody agrees. Um, convictions. All right, give me this dangerous territory now. All right, give me some either convictions you hold or you know that other people hold. Maybe somebody different than you. Christian convictions. Some do, some don't. What do you got? Yeah, baptism, right? And we actually have a couple of items when it comes to baptism. You first of all have mode. Now, mode means how much water do you need, right? So if you go to usually a Presbyterian, Episcopalian church, etc., you only use a little bit of water because you're only baptizing mostly little babies. You don't want to dunk babies, right? <laughs> you get in trouble that way. So, so how much water do you need? A little bit. Do you need a lot where you dunk the sucker, right? And some denominations, some groups, they immerse three times. Some three times backwards, some three times forward, some all, all kinds. How much water do you need? That's the one question, that's mode. But then you also have the question of who can get baptized? And so can you baptize infants? Uh, that is technically called pedo-baptism, pedo's child. Is it child baptism, you know, infant baptism, or believer baptism? Now, it's kind of interesting that whether you're a pedo-baptist or a believer-baptist, everybody has two things. So, if you believe in infant baptism, you have baptism, and then later on, some of you former Presbyterians or Presbyterians, after baptism, later on, what, what do you have? You need confirmation, Right? What do you do in confirmation? You confirm the baptism that you experienced before you could believe. So if you are a Baptist, where you baptize believers, that comes second. What do you almost always have before that? Dedication. So everybody has two. It's just, when are you getting wet? Are right, you getting wet early or late? That, that's kind of the question. So if you believe in believer baptism, you have dedication, which, which is what we do. And we often say dedication really, I mean, the child can't dedicate. Parents are dedicating themselves to bring the child up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And at some point, that 
parental influence and shaping will be confirmed in baptism. If you go to a more, you know, liturgical church or a more higher Presbyterian Episcopalian, they're going to do baptism and later have confirmation. Is that how it works? Now, I, I say this usually, and I don't think it freaks anybody out, and if it does, I'm glad. That's why I'll say it. Um, if, you were, if you were to ask a Presbyterian, Episcopalian, someone who baptizes infants, right, and suppose the person was knowledgeable, and they knew, right, they're just not hanging on, on the edges. Suppose you were to say to that Presbyterian, why do you baptize infants when they can't even make a decision for their faith? You know what a well-taught Presbyterian would say? Because the Bible tells me to. That's why. And you know what? It does. It does. Here's what they would say. In the Old Testament, children were recognized as children of the covenant when they were infants. If that's going to change, we need chapter and verse to let us know that changed. Otherwise, children are considered children of the covenant ever since they're young because of their parents' faith. And you have Paul, what he says in Colossians, where he's comparing baptism and circumcision. So not only do you have this theological theme, you've got Paul making the case. Why do you baptize infants? Because the Bible says. And if you were to ask a Baptist, right, why do you only baptize believers? Because the Bible says. And you know what? It does. You never have explicitly recorded in the New Testament an infant or young child being baptized ever. Now, that's an argument from silence, but you see what I'm saying? Notice, that's a perfect example of a conviction. It's a human construct. But notice, the two sides of the, of, maybe it's not a debate, but the two sides of the issue, they take certain verses and concepts, and they make it center of the plate. They take other ideas, theological themes and verses, and they discard them, right? They, they put that out in the trash with the avocado, because uh, that doesn't fit their theory, right? But they're both doing the same thing. Some things become center to plate, other things discarded, and other issues kind of move into the background. And we're not going to talk about that because it doesn't make my case. See how that works? What else you got? Have, that's, convictions are fun, and we, we like to fight, right? Any other convictions? Just say it. Yell it out. Celebration like Christmas? Is that what you say, Christmas? Should you celebrate? How do you celebrate? Etc. right? And so there are some that are going to say, you know, the old Puritans, right? They would say, no Christmas trees, no celebration, none of that. We don't get into all that uh, frivolity. We don't get into, all, we're serious about following Jesus. We don't get into all of the customs of the day. Yeah, you could follow that. And so we're going to be much more somber and disciplined in our pursuit of God. All right, I'll throw out one for you. Um, don't mean to stir the pot too much. How about role of women? What can women do? What can't they do? That is, I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not taking sides. Some do, some don't. And if you were to talk to some solid, evangelical, Bible-believing, you know, people want to continue what Jesus started, and they say, why do you ordain women and have women in pastoral positions? They would say, because the Bible says so. The Bible says if you're gifted, and if the Holy Spirit has been recognized in you, that person should be in leadership. And if you were to say to some that are more, um, that would be, the technical word is complementarian. If you were to say to those that say leadership in the church and in the home should be male-directed, they would say, because the Bible says. There are verses in the Bible that support um, women functioning as leaders. And there are verses in the Bible that support, you know, male headship. Those two ideas, right, theologically, the more, you know, the male-dominated one is called complementarianism. The more females can do whatever based on giftedness and grace, that is egalitarian. So the egalitarians and the complementarians take a different position. That is a conviction. That's not an absolute. That's not one of those views is not clearly and regularly taught. Now, but, but that's a good case in point to remind us, just like baptism. You can't punt as a church. You can't say, well, you know what? We'll just do it all. You can't. What can the women do? What can't they do, right? Who's going to preach this week? Who's going to be on the elder board? So churches have to take positions on areas of conviction and even areas of preference. That doesn't mean that we all of a sudden think it's an absolute. 
You just have to make decisions to determine who can do what and how you're going to do it. Um, it was much easier. So, you know, I taught at a seminary for 30 years. And I, I used to always say, it's really easy to be at a seminary. We can punt on all these issues. We don't have to decide what women can do. We're not a church. We don't have to decide what kind of baptism we, we're not a church. Churches can't punt. Churches have to come up with answers on all those areas of conviction and on even many of the areas of preference because you have to decide what music we're going to play this week, how are we going to celebrate Christmas, who can do what. you got to answer all those questions. But that doesn't mean we hold them as absolutes. You can hold them as convictions and you kind of practice them because that's what our community recognizes without somehow elevating it to the absolute level. Make sense? A behavior one. I'll just mention a behavior one. So you got behavioral convictions, you got theological convictions. How about this one? Consumption of alcohol. Some do, some don't, right? And you know what? You can find verses in the Bible that seem to imply pretty strongly, you know, you, you really shouldn't drink, right? Um, you know, you have verses like the priest can never drink if they're going to, to do this and be very careful. You know, if you're um, a Nazarite, you can't take out, can't do all these things. Well, you know what? If we're sold out to the Lord the way Nazarites are, we should be doing that. And if we're serving the Lord as priest, we should be doing that. It's pretty tough to sustain that position as being clearly and regularly taught when Jesus' first miracle was making wine. I mean, why in the world would he make wine and serve it to everybody if you're not allowed to drink? Like Jesus is tending bar, but you're not allowed to drink, uh, right? Some do, some don't. So you can take some verses, you put them front and center. Now, I have no problem with someone saying, as a conviction, so you know what? Based on all the things that we have to drink in our world and based on my personal or my family's um, you know, predisposition to you know, kind of being an addictive kind of personality, I choose to not to be a teetotaler. That, that's perfectly fine. But don't make it an absolute where you can't be a Christian if you drink a beer after you golf, right? That, that makes sense? All right, so convictions. Next one, preferences. Now, when you get the preferences, you are now far removed from the Bible. You've left the Bible far behind. Preferences are rooted in what you like. Right Now, we don't like to say that because it sounds so egotistical, right? It sounds so selfish, but that's the reality of it, right? Preferences are things you like. Um, they're not based on what the Bible says. They're not really based on human constructs with biblical data. It's based on stuff you like, right? And so preferences, you're pretty far removed from the Bible, but here's the danger. We don't like to lose, right? We don't like to lose arguments, you know, even when our spouse, our kid, we don't. So here's what we do. Since we don't like to lose, we begin to import, illegitimately import, biblical rationale or moral rationale for our preferences because we think we can win the day then. So we say things like this. I'll make up things that are pretty obvious, right? We don't have that kind of music in the church because the Bible says we shouldn't. Is that right? Where's that verse at? The Bible says we should wear our best when we gather together to worship God. Is that right? Notice, what are we doing? We're taking moral, biblical rationale and somehow using it to bolster our preference because we think it makes us feel better. No, it just proves you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, right? You should say, I like this, I don't like that. So preferences, things like right, music style color of carpet, right? We used to have, in this room, many of you remember, we still have the pews. We used to have, everything used to be Mennonite maroon, right? <laughs> well, we've gotten away from some of that on the floor, right? Now we have, uh, <laughs> right? Others of you, so here, my preference is, I like blues and blacks. I don't like browns and greens. Don't ever give me an earth tone. I, I'm, I, I'm semi-colorblind, so I can't have too many weird colors because I'm not sure what I look like. Blues and blacks are good. Right, maybe a gray here and there, but I'm good with blues and black. Well, now you've got to make decisions. What color carpet are you going to get? What color are we going to paint things? What color the soap dishes? What color is the tile going to be? What songs are we going to sing this week? What do you expect people to wear? Who's going to get on them about doing this or doing that? Can the ushers wear flip flops when they take the offering? Like they're all preference. The Bible doesn't say anything about any of that. And you can import any biblical or any moral data you want. <laughs> 
You're just illegitimately using the Bible to bolster your preference so you don't sound like, you know, a selfish person. Now, here's why I think these three are important. And without the three, I'm not sure how you do this. Here's why these are important to me. We need to prioritize theology. The absolutes remind us and show us the hills we are to die on. You know what? There are some hills you die on. They are absolute hills. You die on the hill of the deity of Christ. You die on the hill of the sacrificial atonement. You die on the, you die on the hill of the Trinity. You die on the hill, right? You, there are the hills you die on. You don't die on the hill of what instruments are going to play songs this week. You don't die on the hill of your favorite preacher's preaching, right? You die on the absolute hill. And, you know, we live in a world, let's face it, where lots of people in our world, they have nothing worth dying for. They would, here's the flip side of that. If you have nothing you'll die for, you have nothing to live for either then. You need something that you're wrapping around the core of your life And the Bible gives you those things. And it's not the things we often fight about. Convictions are things that we need. Like, you you may think I don't like convictions, right? Because of what I'm saying. We need to develop convictions. We're commanded to develop convictions. Study the scripture and come up with convictions. And here's what God would say. Live by your convictions. And dialogue with people who have different convictions. Debate each other. You know, have a good argument. Develop convictions and live by them. Don't. Use your convictions to measure someone else's spiritual maturity. Now you've crossed the line. That's what the Pharisees did. It was not wrong for the Pharisees to tie their spices. It was not wrong for them to follow all of, you know, develop all these details that are going to stay far away from disobedience. It's wrong when they took their constructs and began to measure other people's spirituality on the basis of their convictions. Now you've crossed the line. So convictions, you give liberty, right? You give space. We're brothers and sisters and we disagree on stuff, right? You believe you need a lot of water to get baptized. I don't think you need that much. You believe you can be little, it can be big. I believe you need to be little, big. Well, fine, but we're still brothers and sisters, right? We get along, we're friends. Here's a tough one. What do you do with preferences? If absolutes are hills you die on and convictions are things you give liberty and freedom for people to disagree as you dialogue, you know what preferences are? You sacrifice yours so someone else can have theirs met. That's what you do with preferences. That stinks, doesn't it? Isn't that kind of what Paul means when he says, put other people's interests ahead of your own? You can't do that with absolutes. You can't put other people's absolutes ahead of your own. You can't put other people's convictions ahead of yours so you're going to do theirs, not yours. But you can put their preferences ahead of yours. Isn't it interesting how we often want to reverse that? We will fight often tooth and nail for our preferences being met rather than sacrificing them for the preference of others. We often cave and don't dialogue about our convictions. We don't even mention it because we don't want to get into an argument. And absolutes, we don't think much of them at all, and we rarely think about we may have to die for them someday. We, like we reverse what the emphasis should be. Another way that you, probably, you sometimes hear me say this, we fly the Jesus flag at the top of the flagpole. That's the absolute. Jesus is God. It's all in the God. That's what it is. You know what? Convictions, they're a whole lot lower on the flagpole. I'm glad you have convictions. I have some convictions. Yeah, let, let's fight about them, but I'm not dying for them. I'm not going to die for yours either. Preferences, as hard as it is, I need to sacrifice mine for yours, and you need to sacrifice yours for mine. Can you remember the last time we, sp- we sang a Springsteen song on a Sunday morning? See, I sacrifice my preferences for you regularly, and you don't even know. <laughs> Absolutes, convictions, preferences. All right, now, here's what I did. This, uh, we're we're going to blow through this quickly. You can check it on your own. Write the references down. Lest you think this is a new construct. Again, the words are new. Lest you think, oh, nobody had this struggle before. No, no, no. This struggle has been the struggle of the church throughout the centuries in the Old Testament. Same struggle. Absolutes, convictions, preferences. I just read through 1 Corinthians, and it's interesting Read through 1 Corinthians with the lens on of absolutes, convictions, preferences. You could um, outline Paul's letter around those things. 
He starts the letter like this. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of our Lord Jesus, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We could easily spend an hour playing with that. Look at that first word, Paul. Persecutor become preacher. What he was is no longer who he is. Now think about that. He calls the Corinthians. This is probably one of the most immature, backwards, selfish, egotistical churches we read about in the New Testament. How does he begin? To the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ. He's not only writing to those that are sanctified, he's writing to all of them. The word sanctified doesn't mean you have your act completely together. Sanctified means set apart. So here's what he says. If you're a Christian, you have been set apart for God's purpose. You may not be living real well like you're set apart, but in the gospel, you are set apart. Why not live what you already are? That's what the rest of the letter is going to be, right? For those of you that are sanctified, um, live out your calling. Their calling is to continue what Jesus started. So give up your, you know, incidental, give up your pursuits and pursue the ultimate thing you should be pursuing, the things that Christ pursued and gave for us. I I read an interesting thing this week, and I've been checking out it's right. See where it says grace and peace? Paul says that a lot. Grace and peace. Grace and peace to you from God the Father. Grace, peace, and love. He never, ever writes peace and grace. He always writes grace and peace. You can't have peace without grace. The order has to be that way. You check it out. Grace and peace to you. Grace, peace, and love. Grace has to come first. If you don't know your need, and by grace have that need met in the gospel, you can't experience peace, love, or you can't continue what Jesus started. It's always grace and peace. All right, now here's one. You, you tell me, but I'll read it, and then I'll, don't yell it out. I'll point to you, and you can say it. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. I often, uh, I often think, now remember, this letter was read, right? Paul's not in Corinth. He wrote the letter, and it's delivered back in Corinth. How would you feel sitting there if you're from Chloe's household? Like, Paul's ratting you out, right? Now, some from Chloe's household have told me, like, he's calling them out. Like, I, I would hate to be that. Um, some from Chloe's household ratted you all out. They've informed me that there are quarrels among you. I thought it was peaceful there. They told me it's not. Some of you say, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas, Peter. Still others, I follow Jesus. He goes on and says, this should not be. Question. Absolute conviction preference. What do you got? Yeah, probably preference. Which preacher leader do you prefer? What does he say? This should not be. He never says this should not be when it comes to a conviction. We'll read one here about meat offered. He doesn't say, now you got, that shouldn't be. When it comes to preferences, he said, that shouldn't be. Now look, it makes perfect sense, right? Paul planted the church. He's the founder. Of course, well, I like Paul. You know, he started, you know, I didn't know Jesus until Paul introduced me. I follow Paul. Other people say, well, well, I follow Peter. He's a real apostle. I mean, he held that, the water that Jesus made wine. He held that bread. He passed that around when Jesus multiplied the bread and fish. He he heard the sermon. Paul didn't hear any of that firsthand. Peter heard it. He's a real apostle. Apollos. He's that, Apollos is like the, um, James Harden of preachers, right? Uh, he was the best preacher. Well, I, I don't fall asleep when Apollos preaches, right? He's the best one. I want to listen to him. And then the real, real spiritual ones say, well, I follow Jesus, right? Paul will go on and say, uh, let me just check. Did I die for you? Did Peter die for your sins? How about Apollos? Did he pay the penalty you owed? What do you mean you're following Peter and Paul? And uh, Get me out of that group preference. What do you do with preferences? This shouldn't be. 
Don't divide over preferences. Here's another one. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. Absolute conviction preference. What do you got? Absolute, right? No, excuse me, no other foundation except the one laid in Christ. One, right? Absolute. You die on that hill. Now, here's another one. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, we don't have much. Some places in the world today, this is still an issue. Now, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there's no God but one. But even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on the earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things have their beginning. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us any near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat and no better if we, if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Absolute conviction preference. Some do, some don't, right? Conviction. Some do, some don't. Notice, Paul. I, I love how Paul threads the needle here. Sometimes it irritates me how these verses get explained. We don't have time to expound them now, but I'll explain how I get irritated. I get irritated because sometimes it's presented as if Paul only admonishes the mature and says, now you guys, you need to cave and allow the weak to be the leaders. That doesn't make sense, right? So if they're not going to allow their liberty to cause the weak ones to stumble, well, then that means the weak are calling the shots and leading. Well, that's dumb. Paul's threading the needle. He says to the strong, he says to those that know idols are nothing, he says to you, don't use your knowledge as a way to slam dunk the weaker brothers. And he says to the weaker brothers that don't think you can eat meat sacrificed idols, you're weak. Grow the heck up, right? And they're being admonished. He's calling them weak. He says it right in this passage. We know that no, nothing's there, right? There are no real, there are no real gods besides, and there's nothing there. They're believing a fiction. That, that's a reprimand, right? To call somebody weak and what they're believing is, is a fan, fantasy. That, that, that's a reprimand. He's threading the needle. He's saying to both sides, you got a human construct here. Live out your construct, be in dialogue with each other, and make sure that love and unity, right? Liberty wins the day rather than division coming because of the conviction. All right, absolutes, convictions, preface. I, I want to explain one theological concept, then we're done. It's like 8 o'clock, we got a couple more minutes. There are some, and you know, these concentric circles, right? These absolutes, convictions, prioritized theology. Um, it kind of helped me understand two big theological movements that still exist um, and have existed for a while. But, but let's just use our construct, right? Our, our construct to explain it. There are some that empty the absolute circle, so there are no more absolutes, pretty much have a minimal conviction circle, right? Everything becomes a preference. So you want to do this, you want to do that, it's all fine, right? All roads lead to heaven, right? Live any way you want, right? There are no consequences for your sin. At the end, everybody makes it, right? You know, God's this, you know, grandfather up there. Everybody believes the same thing. You can believe whatever you want. You know, whatever works for you, works for you. Don't condemn what anybody else does. What is that kind of move to preference called? Okay, I would call that theological liberalism. That's the liberalism. And, you know, let's be honest, we're among friends. That is the position of most mainline churches now, right? So the old Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, the old Episcopalian Church, Lutheran Church, Evangel right? um, Evangelical Lutheran Church, they're all mainline. They pretty much have vacated the absolute circle. They have some convictions, but it's mostly preference. All roads lead to heaven, right? All religions basically say the same thing. If you prefer to Jesus thing, fine. You do the Jesus thing. If you prefer Sophia, the goddess of wisdom, well, you do. It all, it's all the same stuff. That's basically liberalism, right? Not liberalism as in political party. Uh, that's liberalism, theological liberalism. My guess is maybe some of you have come from that background, but that, that, that's a little, a little foreign to you, a little different. You would be a little more familiar with this one. 
There's also the uh, theological movement where everything kind of gets sucked into the center, right? So you have centrifugal theology and centripetal theology, right? Centripetal is kind of like a toilet. Everything gets pulled in the middle, right? That, that's this one. Um, centripetal, everything's an absolute. So yeah, there may be some preferences, and one day when I find one, I'll let you know, right? And a few convictions, but you know what? The Bible speaks clearly on every issue. If you want to know where you should go to school, if you want to know what kind of clothing you should wear, you want to know what shoes to buy, you want to know how you should raise your kids, every de- the Bible tells you, right? That would be called fundamentalism. Now, fundamentalism, I, I, I find this fascinating, and you don't have to agree with my construct, by the way. I, I find it almost humorous because at the end of the day, liberalism and fundamentalism are opposites, right? But they have the same exact problem. And the problem is they do not have a prioritized theology. To one, everything is an absolute. You know what this means? I have to die on every hill. I die on the hill of what you wear to church. I die on the hill of who you marry. I die on the hill of how you should raise your kids. I die on the hill of what color the building should be. I die on the hill of what music we're going to do. I die on every hill. It's not coincidental that they're called fighting fundamentalists. You have to, you have to fight. You, because the Bible's you got to fight on every hill. Liberalism, you don't fight on any hill, right? Nothing's worth dying, right? You, everything's a prayer. You believe whatever you want, right? It all winds up in the same place. Have to have a prioritized theology. So if we're going to learn how to do ministry the way Jesus did, you got to have a prioritized theology. Don't you think that when Jesus left heaven, he would have had to make just a few adjustments when he showed up here? Um, you know, he had to make a fair number of cultural accommodations, don't you think? Um, but notice he did that because even Jesus has a prioritized theology. Jesus came and he spoke Aramaic. Jesus knows every language that's ever been spoken or he could have spoken any language he wanted, right? He could have said things that are absolutely true. Nobody would have ever understood a word he said. But he spoke in categories that the Jews understood. And he fed the 4,000, which was probably a Gentile crowd. And he fed the 5,000, which was probably a Jewish crowd. And Jesus comes and speaks in language that they understand. He's becoming like them so they can become like him. Isn't that interesting? The Galatians 4 passage where Paul says, I became like you so you can become like me. Paul didn't make that up. He got that from Jesus. Jesus says, I became like you. God himself, eternal, the sovereign king of the universe, became a human being, a microscopic cell in the womb of a Jewish teenager born into this world, was suffered, persecuted by human beings he was giving life to at the minute they were doing that to him. He became like us. Why? As an end? No. So that we can become like him and be with him forever. What we're talking about, a prioritized theology, it's from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. And if we're going to do mission... And if we're going to do ministry, you've got to have a prioritized theology. Everything the Bible teaches is true. Not everything the Bible teaches is equally important. Make sure you have a prioritized theology. What hills are you going to die on? What do you need to give space and liberty to people, Christians who believe differently? And what are you going to sacrifice your preferences for so someone else can get theirs met? Let's pray. Lord, thanks for uh, becoming like us so that we can become like you. And Lord, I pray that we would never get over that, that in new ways you would regularly remind us of that reality, that we're so messed up and far from you that you had to become like us in order to renew a relationship with you so that we can become like you and be with you forever. And may that propel us into ministry. And may we realize when we step into ministry that we need to prioritize theology and help us to understand with greater clarity what the absolutes are. And let's sink our roots into them and fly those flags. And convictions, yeah, let's develop them and let's live by them and let's dialogue about them. 
And when it comes to preferences, Lord, give us opportunity to sacrifice our preferences so someone else can get their preferences met. And we follow Jesus' example as we do it. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.